Joshua, there's a lot of significant things that take place and that happen pretty quick in these 24 chapters. There's several things that will challenge us this morning about how God responds, how He, uh, maybe a better word, not responding because God is the initiator of everything, but how God interacts with people and His creation. There are some very strong theological debates that are sparked by the book of Joshua, and we're going to try to highlight some of those major ones and give you a a biblical response to some of those. But before we kind of get there, if you don't have a note sheet, you can grab one from the the, uh, chair in the back. Let's go ahead and look at the stats real quick just to kind of get our bearings. This is the first book of the second division of the Old Testament books. Does anybody remember how many divisions there are total of the Old Testament books, major divisions? It's more than three. There are five. So do you remember how the numbers broke up? It had like a cadence to it. The first are five, the next are 12, and then the two, five, five, and then you end on 12. So it's five, 12, 5, 5, 12. So this is the beginning of the next section of the 12 books, and these books we label as what type of books? We went from the law, and now we're going to to what? Historical. historical books. Very good. So Joshua is the first of the historical books. This book doesn't actually name its author, But as you look at the contents of the book, it's very evident that we have an eyewitness and Joshua himself is the most likely candidate. And so most scholars would believe that he is the one that wrote this particular account. So if you think back, Joshua was actually born in Egypt. He was born as a slave in Egypt. He was one of only two people that survived from that first generation of people that came out of the Exodus and survived those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, So Joshua was the first that survived, and the name of the other individual was who? Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb are the only two that are from that original generation. And now in this particular book, and it started actually at the end of of Deuteronomy, but the transition of leadership is going from Moses and then is now being passed to Joshua. So this book was written about 1405 B.C., as they're entering into the land. And this book covers 30 years of of history for Israel. And sometimes when we're dealing with such sweeping books in the Old Testament and how much history is covered in the 39 of the Old Testament, 30 years doesn't seem like a lot. But if you think about your own life experience, like many of you, at least those of you who are in junior high and high school, like the average age probably of you students is about 15 years old. And so imagine living all that you've accomplished in these 15 years of life. Now go back and do it all over again. That's 30 years of of life experience. There's a lot that takes place in these 24 chapters. And sometimes we think that when they went into the land that they actually conquered the land in a very brief amount of time, but that was not the case. This took a, a long campaign for the Lord to now he promised to give them the land but then he also through his providence told the people to go in and take the land and so it took 30 years of battle for them to take the land and to divide it 
So you may be familiar with the fact, if you look at the board behind me, that the name Joshua in the Hebrew means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. When you're reading your Old Testament, uh, depending on the translation that you have, most of the English translations in the Old Testament, if you see the Lord, the, the name Lord in all uppercase, this is what is called the Tetragrammaton. This is the Hebrew name Yahweh in the Old Testament. So Joshua or Yeshua means Yahweh saves, and that is the Old Testament version of the New Testament name Jesus. And so the New Testament doesn't tell us directly that Joshua is a type of Christ, but we do see some parallels on how they live their life and some imagery in the life of Joshua, and of course, uh, specifically with his, his name. So imagine your, your military leader, his name is Yahweh saves. He is the one that is leading you, constantly reminding you that God is the one that is going to give favor to his people. So let's take a look at the structure. We're going to kind of look at the uh, the brief outline of the book, and then we're going to spend our time in a couple of different passages here and, and look at some, some challenging questions that people have when they consider this particular book in the Old Testament. But Joshua divides equally into two portions, chapters 1 through 12 and then chapters 13 through 24. And our key passage actually comes from the first division, so we're going to spend our, our time there. But chapters 1 through 12 is the conquering of the land. So the first half of the book are the military campaigns where the people had to go into Canaan under the leadership of Joshua in order to win the land over. And so if you look at chapter 1, we're going to read here verses 1 through 9. This is our, our key passage from the book. And let's consider what the Lord is telling Joshua here as they're about to set into their military campaigns. Look at verse 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon is even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all, excuse me, to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, 
and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God in his grace appears to Joshua right at the beginning of his leadership, and you can understand the significance of why this is important. If you are Joshua, and now you're stepping into the shoes of all that Moses accomplished as a leader, from a human standpoint, I'm sure there was some hesitation about what you're about to take on. And so God appears to Joshua and tells him, and he actually, at the end of this passage, tells him something three different times. What does he repeat to him? Be strong and courageous. Imagine God telling you, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Not only because God knows what's coming, he knows the challenges that are going to be there, but he says, I am with you. So that must have been such a, a great comfort to Joshua to know that, that the Lord is with him. But imagine trying to fill those, those shoes. And the people would have needed to know that God is confirming leadership with this transition. And so God does that. He tells them to be strong and very courageous. Now, before we kind of get into uh, the other aspects of the book, I want to do something a little bit different from our Old Testament studies. Those of you who have uh, been in the group for any amount of time, especially those that are, have gone through our foundations class, this will not be new to you. But I want you guys to take your note sheet, um, find a, a gap there somewhere where you have a little bit of space, and I want you to look at verse 8 in your text, chapter 1, verse 8, just verse 8. And what I want you to do is I want you to make at least 10 observations from verse 8. Now, you might be thinking, are there 10 words in this verse? Yes, there are. But even if you can't get to 10, we're going to work on it together. But I want you guys to think about verse 8, read it over several times, start to make some observations, and we'll see if we can compile a list of at least 10. So go ahead and I'll give you a few minutes to work on that. All right. So now I need you guys to talk. Your least favorite thing to do in Sunday school, at least when we do the lesson. Give me guys a hard time. All right. Who wants to start us? Yeah. So the book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Okay. Yep. Shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Okay. Say it again. A conditional promise? Expand on that a little bit. The last part, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Yeah. That's conditional on the first part. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Shall meditate on it day and night. Yeah. That may be different than what all that was saying. Yeah, so implication is do this, then this will happen. But if you do not do this, 
you will not be successful. And we're going to see that as we go into uh, chapter 7. Yeah. Okay. What else? Be careful. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, be careful. Why does that stand out to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be watchful, be careful, be diligent. Yeah, it takes effort, it takes work. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It says, depart from your mouth. <clears throat> so you're supposed to be talking about the word constantly. Teaching it, talking of it, discussing it. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Good. What else? Prosperous, have success, talks about a blessing, the blessing of obedience. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes we get caught up with, rightly so, not wanting to believe that salvation is by works. However, when you do what is righteous, God does bless you. Right? There is blessing for obedience. We're not earning blessing, but he will bless those who obey him. So that's good. The last part is kind of interesting um, that it says, for then you will make your way prosperous, comma, and then you will have success. It's almost implying that prosperity gets you to success, hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. For then and then. Mm -hmm. There's a progression. My translation says it a little different. Mm -hmm. It says the, for then you will prosper and succeed, whatever you do. Yeah. So it says that to say like it does take time. Yeah. And um, if you guys kind of, those of you who have gone through foundations, when we talk about our purpose statements, are there, there's multiple purpose statements in this verse, right? Where are they? So that, and then I would argue that this is also for, right, so that this will take place. It's a purpose of what will happen as a result of. Um, yeah, well, this is more of like the, the part of the promise, but it is part of that purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you will make. Isn't that interesting? You will make. Good. No, it's all right. That was, my, that was my fault. I looked away from his hand. So say it again. Your way. Yeah, what is the way? What is your way? Mm -hmm. That's more kind of interpretation. 
That's right. We can, we can blend them right now. Um, well, I was thinking too, like the, the biblical concept of way is the summary of how you live. So this will be the totality of your life, you know, how you live and your relationships going into the land, um, trying to be successful in what the Lord has called us to do. And so your way, your entirety of being will be successful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Psalm 1. It does, yeah. It has that same flavor. If you, if you remember Psalm 1 where it says, uh, meditate day and night, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. And, and uh, now I'm forgetting it too, but and you'll make your way prosperous. It uses that terminology, right? Yeah, that's good. I also think it's interesting that meditation, what you think about, ties into how you live. So he starts with what you dwell on, and then you will then live out what you spend time thinking about. So meditation, filling your, your thoughts with what's true from God's word, then will produce an effect of how you live your life. Because starting with from your mouth and talking about it, discussing it, teaching it, and then going from there after your thoughts. Yeah. So it's verbalized, it's thought about, and then it's lived out. That's great. That's like the, that's like the trifecta right there. Good job. I didn't even catch that. That's excellent. So a couple of things that we usually just take for granted in terms of observation. Who's speaking here? The Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to, yeah. So that's part of your observation, right? I put you kind of in the middle of a, a section. Who's talking? Who's being spoken to? That's good. Are there uh, any commands in this passage? Shall not, shall, be careful is like modifying the, the command. This is how you are to do it, but they are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do accordingly. Or this is maybe not directly a command, but these are all tied together with that idea of what God is commanding them to do. Okay, anything else? That was great. This is why it's the key passage of the book. The Lord appears. He speaks to Joshua. He confirms that he is going to be with him tells them to be strong and very courageous. And this launches this 24-chapter part of our Old Testament. So now let's kind of... Oh, Jeremy, yes. Yeah. Well, you can add beyond observation. 
yeah. I was thinking that since we hear so often that I kind of, it feels like we hear a lot in Bible, it says a lot in the Bible and it teaches that the word shall not depart from our mouth and we meditate on it day and night. But this is only, uh, I don't know when uh, Moses wrote the first five books, but this is immediately after that. So he, he hasn't really, the books of the Bible probably haven't even been around for his entire life. So he's probably just mm. saying that this is for the first time. Yeah. So, yeah. So the Pentateuch was, was compiled at that point because Moses wrote it. And that's why he says, yeah, this, um, the book of this law, it's, he's talking about the Pentateuch because that's what, anyway, go ahead. And then uh, I also had a question. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this isn't really uh, much of an observation, but I was wondering if the last part of the, the verse is make your way prosperous and you will have success. That, is that, I, I was thinking that was just referring to the conquest of Canaan, right? That's not just to all of what you just said. It's just to, we're not guaranteed success. We are guaranteed prosperity and success, but we just define it differently sometimes, right? So I think the principle here, I mean, this is an immediate historical event, which is good to remember. This is they're about to go in and conquer the land. But the principle behind it is if you obey God's word, you will be prosperous and have success. Now, we think of that a little bit differently. What does it mean to be prosperous? What does it mean to be successful? You might have a, a goal of what you want to do to be successful, but God's prosperity for you may look a little bit differently, but I think it holds true to that. Having said this in the, in the immediate context, the thing that's right in front of them is needing to, to take the land, but that establishes them as a nation. And so if they are to do this and to believe God in his word and to obey him, they will be able to establish themselves in the land, which means building houses, having families, have, you know, the cities, the cultures, the, all of that. I think that's all flows from this immediate historical event. But yes, the immediate is like, Joshua, you're about to go into battle. So I'm, I'm trying to give you confidence. Does that, does that help? And that's why when you're reading your Old Testament, it does take, kind of back to what um, Sage was bringing out, be careful when you handle the scriptures. We're not in Israel. We're not going into battle. We don't have any promise of success of military campaign. But the principle behind obeying God's word is true for us today. And the New Testament does bear that out, that we are to obey his word and God blesses obedience. So let's look at a couple of the key questions. We're going to hit these fairly quickly because I want to... I want to show you one section here in Joshua that is extremely helpful and practical for our lives even today. Um, one of the key questions that people ask, if you look at chapter 2, we're not going to read through the entire section, but uh, who does Joshua, or at least the people, who, who do the, the spies run into in chapter 2? Who do they meet? They meet Rahab. And so we hit on this a few weeks ago when we were looking at God's attributes and we were looking at the fact that God is true in all that he does. He is a God of truth. And so one of the hot debated topics from this particular chapter is, is it ever okay to tell a lie? And when you look at the 
the testimony of Scripture. Let me back up. Some people will then look at what Rahab did in Joshua chapter 2. They'll also look at Hebrews chapter 11, that she's included in the hall of faith. And so the, the assumption is that God showed that there are righteous times to lie when it's either for the protection of life or the carrying out of, of God's purposes. There's a couple things you have to remember. Number one is that Hebrews never mentions Rahab's lie. It says her faith. When you look at Joshua chapter 2, Rahab demonstrated her faith verbally. She told the men, we heard what Yahweh has done, and he is the God of heaven and earth for a pagan prostitute to recognize that he was not just a local God of a, of a certain country, but that he was the Lord of, of heaven and earth is her profession of faith. So Hebrews does not support her lie. And as you go through, you look at the Ten Commandments. Commandment number nine is you shall not bear false testimony. Some people say, well, that's a courtroom setting. It's like, well, no. Bearing false testimony is saying something to someone else that is not true, whether it's in a courtroom or not. Third, the scriptures never tell us that it's okay to lie. The, the argument is from silence, and they make a leap in logic. And so you can never use sin to try to overcome or to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. God declares himself as one who hates lips that lie. And the critics will say, or the, the, uh, the other side of the argument would say, well, is someone who is characterized by lying. But if you look at the language of, the, of all of the scriptures which talk about deceit, it says God hates lips that lie. It doesn't matter how many. The fact that if you say something that is not true, God hates that. Jesus told us that he is the way the truth, and the life. His very being is truth, and everything he says is honest and correct. And so if God were only using people that weren't sinful, then he would never use any of us because none of us would qualify for that. Did Rahab display her faith in hiding the spies? Absolutely. But that does not condone every aspect of how she did it. And so we need to be careful not to excuse any sort of falsehood because the Bible does not allow for that. The burden of proof is on somebody to show from the scriptures where a lie is ever okay, and it's not. So that's one of the things that people bring up. The second kind of hot topic is that when you look at the book of Joshua, and especially for people that are trying to discard the, the truth of the Bible is that they will read the account of Joshua and they will, they will say, well, how can you believe in a God who approves genocide? So genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. That's what genocide means. So the first question is, does Joshua teach genocide? 
it records that it was done. The struggle that people have is that God gave the command to do it. So is there genocide in Joshua? Yes, there is. So how do we reconcile that? How do we give an answer to those criticisms? There's a couple things I want you to consider. One is that, as Andrew pointed out, this is a recording of, of what God commanded. Joshua did not decide to do this on his own initiative. So God gave the command to do it. Everything that God does is holy and right. So we can never fully understand his actions because he is beyond us. I want to read for you guys a, a quotation from MacArthur Bible Handbook when, when dealing with this particular issue of genocide in the book of Joshua. I think this is helpful. It says, when Joshua issues orders for the destruction of Jericho, he was echoing God's very clear commands. Passages like Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7, make it impossible to soften or avoid the truth that God ordered the destruction of entire populations. These were not just soldiers killing soldiers. Many of the victims were women and children. The challenge for serious and humble Bible students is to face these horrors and the hard lessons they teach without trying to explain them away. If we do not have a growing awe about the holiness of God and His righteous judgment of sin, our understanding of God's grace and mercy will fade away. Without an acknowledgement that God can and does punish, the possibility of mercy and forgiveness carries little weight. Now listen to this. God could have used sickness, famine, fire, or flood to clear the land, but He chose to use the people of Israel. In terrible natural disasters, everyone suffers. It isn't easy to accept that little children share the fate of their parents, but they often do. And they did as Israel carried out God's judgments. Did God unfairly include these children in punishment, or do the parents and leaders bear responsibility for putting the innocent in harm's way by the rejection of God? Some of these issues will have to be settled beyond death when the final judgment occurs. But the point here is that God, everything He does is holy and right. And you have to remember that those who were in Canaan, the men, the women, the children, none of them were innocent. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God is the one that kills. God is the one that makes alive. We, we learn that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So... As believers of the Scripture, does Joshua teach genocide? It does. But this was God's choice and not man's. And God is holy and just in everything He does. Just because it's difficult for us to understand does not mean that God is not the one that has done it. And so that's why we need to cling to the rest of His attributes. Everything God does is holy and just. And, and to me, it's, it's amazing that the Bible does not sugarcoat these things. It doesn't try to uh, make an excuse for them. It clearly says this is what God has decreed. And everything He does is holy and just. I want you guys to turn to Joshua chapter 7. I want us to spend our, our last few moments here in this section 
There were a lot of battles that took place in this particular book. And there was only one battle that Israel lost. Anybody know who defeated them? Or what city defeated them? Ai. Let me give you a little bit of the context of what's taking place here. The nation just came off a miraculous win at the Battle of Jericho. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 6, verse 27, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The people were rejoicing to see that God was stepping in and and protecting them as a people and overthrowing their enemies. They're excited that their leader is following after God's commands, and he's being blessed for that. And then look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, and the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So we won't go into all the details, but in chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, before they went into the battle of Jericho, God had told the people, there are things that are under the ban. You are not allowed to take these particular things from the spoils of your victory in Jericho. So he had put these things as off limits. But there was one individual, his name is Achan, and he went against this command. And so because he did that in the battle of Jericho, when they went to the next battle, the battle of Ai, they were defeated. And it was a, it was, it was a terrible defeat. So now I want you to read the, the fallout of, of what's happened here. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? Now, if you guys remember, whatever happened in Ai must have been so severe for Joshua to have this kind of countenance. The Lord appears to him at the beginning of the book, be strong, be very courageous. They go in, they start having military success, And this battle was such an overwhelming defeat that Joshua said, we shouldn't even be in here. And he considered even going back across the Jordan. Look at verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your uh, face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. There we go with deception again. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, 
Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the families which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And it shall be that the one who has taken the things under the band shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now, this is a fascinating response from God. Does God know who took the things? Yes, of course he does. So why does he use this method of this, this tightening concentric circle from, he says, tribe to family to household and then man by man? Why would he choose to do it this way? It seems to be that God is giving an opportunity for Achan to confess. I mean, as you see this narrowing down, this pressure that's coming upon this man's conscience, God in his grace is giving an opportunity for him to confess, but he, he says nothing. He refuses to do it until he is finally exposed. Look at verse 21. This is his confession. Uh, actually, look at verse 20. Is so Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. The reason this is an important section is because beyond just what's happening here historically for Israel is that God in his mercy is exposing the pattern for sin. Any sin that you commit will follow this pattern. Achan saw something. He then desired it. He took it. And then what was the fourth thing he did? He hid. To see, to covet, to take, and to hide. God is showing us the condition of sinful people. He's exposing for us how sin takes hold in our lives. I want you guys to think quickly through the examples in Scripture. Adam and Eve, they saw that the fruit was delightful and that it was a desire. They desired, they coveted, they desired it because it would make them wise. They took of the fruit, and then what did they do? They hid. They hid themselves. David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel. David saw her bathing. He coveted her. He desired her. He took her, and then he tried to hide his sin. And he did so by killing her husband. He multiplied his transgression. 
trying to cover his sin. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they saw Barnabas give a generous gift to the, to the church leadership, and all of the people were praising Barnabas for his generosity. And Ananias and Sapphira, they saw the prestige of his generosity, and they desired that prestige. And so they took money of their own, and they promised to give all of it from the sale of their property. But they didn't give all of it. They took some back. They held some back. And then they tried to do it secretly. And they hid it. God is showing you, first of all, this is the pattern of how sin develops in your life so that you can recognize it early on and turn before you commit the sin. But secondly, it's also important that if you're hiding something, that is a red flag that sin is involved. So is there anything hidden in your life that you need to confess? And by the way, don't be like Achan making the Lord to expose your sin because it gets much worse if you refuse to confess. So examine your life, see if there's anything that you need to confess and be set free from that sin and that shame. And God offers restoration. He offers cleansing in our life. I want us to end this morning by looking at how Christ is shown in Joshua. Turn to Joshua chapter 5. And for all you, I always forget, who are the people that are very orderly? Is that right-brained or left-brained? It's obviously not me because I can't remember it. Okay, so the right-brained people... I will tell you what the second division is because I know we haven't done that yet. But in Joshua chapter 5, let's look at how Christ appears here in the book of Joshua. Look at verse 13. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man was standing opposite him, and his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua meets this compelling individual. He goes up to him and says, Are you for us or for the enemy? And he says, Neither. Instead, he says, I am the captain of the host of the Lord. The host of the Lord is another word for the angels. This is the host of angels. And if you remember when he tells him to remove his sandals, that makes our mind go back to Moses and the burning bush. This is what's called a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, before he took on human flesh, appears to Joshua in the Old Testament, and Joshua bows down and worships this captain. Isn't that a great title? And this captain receives worship. That's unlike 
what we see in the book of Revelation when John fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. Revelation 19 and Revelation 22, what did the angel tell John? Twice. Don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant of yours. This man, this captain, received Joshua's worship. What an amazing thing. This is called a, a Christophany, that the Lord Jesus Christ would appear to Joshua. What an amazing experience. And the Lord said that he would be with him, and he kept his promise. That's just the first section. We didn't really have time to get into section two, but chapters one through 12 are the conquering of the land. Chapters 13 through 24 is the division of the land as they divided among the tribes according to God's direction. I mean, imagine not having the book of Joshua, what we would not know about Christ, about our sinful character. We learn more about God's holy nature, and we see this pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. What an amazing gift. All right, we're over. So let's go ahead and pray this morning and uh, give thanks for, for Christ. Father, help us when we see things that we desire, if the desires are not according to your law, help us to turn away from those desires. Father, if there are things that we are hiding and we have not confessed, I pray that you would have the, you would, you would provide the, the mercy of exposure so that we can confess our sins and be cleansed. And Lord, we give you praise for your son who has defeated sin on our behalf and that's why we gather as your church to worship him and to give thanks for what he has accomplished for us. And Lord, as, as we looked at chapter one, verse eight, help us to be people who never let the word depart from our mouth. Help us to meditate on your truth and help us to live according to it so that we can be prosperous and find success according to your definition. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.